Hey, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today we're going to give our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, Revive. But before we get into Revive, we're going to be talking about some poll results. Every week on social media, on Twitter, and on our Facebook group, I ask a poll question. And we want you, the community, our listeners, to come out and answer and give us your thoughts so we can talk about them and tell you why you're wrong. Just kidding. Here we go. The poll question I asked this week is, how do you most commonly put your board game components back in their boxes? And the options were baggies or containers, which got 68.4%, almost everybody. Use aftermarket inserts, about 9.2%. Throw it all in unsorted, had a whopping 1%, and that's too much. And use what came in the box was at 21.4%. How do you guys normally try to store your, your board games when you're putting it back? The answer for this one is, it depends. I think I put, use little baggies or containers, but usually the little baggies or containers that are used are ones that came in the box. I don't think I've ever gone and like gotten some baggies and put the stuff in it. So usually I use baggies containers because that's what's already in the box. But having said that, if it's a game that I love and needs a little extra help and effort when it comes to setup and tear down, I will go and buy me some third-party inserts, and I love them. Well, I don't love building them. I love it when they're all done and everything's so organized. It fits right in here and slots right in. And then you open up the box, and it's this beautiful display. You're handing out these things to people. All the components are ready to go. And you take a game like, uh, what's a good example? Spirit Island has a folded space insert that I have in there. So you open that up, and it still takes like two hours to set up, but at least everything is already organized rebellion i have a nice rebellion insert where it has all the uh the the characters and they're labeled on the side if you put it back nicely all those characters are labeled you can pop those guys right out so i do love me a good insert especially when it reduces the setup and teardown time for shout well i said baggies or containers and you know a lot of games do come with baggies now which is great but i have a big old box of baggies from games that had too many baggies or whatever and so i'm usually trying to find the right combination to set up as quickly as possible like separating out the player colors into their own baggies and making sure that the right one thing i i've learned recently is i don't know why i separate like resources you got five different resources in a game just throw them all in one baggie dump them on the table let people pick from them. you don't need to have those separated out it takes it longer to set up takes it longer to put away more baggies in the box so i have been doing Shit, that that's shameful <laughs> that is horrible that's shameful head shakes here but i have tried some aftermarket inserts as well mostly folded space because i don't like big heavy like adding weight to the box i don't want a big wooden insert i've tried some folded space inserts with mixed results you know they're, they're kind of nice like that theoretically they're supposed to help you set up the game and put it away easier the problem is that like it might help you set up a little bit and you can just leave the components in the little bins but then you got to like puzzle this thing back in the box and i feel like that like we played gaia project in sedona and it felt like it took just as much time to set up and put away as if i just had baggies in it and then i've had a couple inserts where I got, I put them in the box and then it causes lid lift. Like I had everything fitting in there. Perfect with expansions and everything. If I just use baggies, then I get this insert now, like everything doesn't fit in the box. So I think I'm going to stay away from aftermarket inserts for the most part. There are some rare cases where the games come with really nice molded inserts that actually work well for setup and teardown, but it's pretty rare. So most of the time I'm just throwing out those inserts and bagging stuff up and trying to get it in a way that takes as little time as possible. I don't know if I'm lazy or persnickety or what it is, but 99.9999% of the time, I just use whatever comes in the box. And a lot of times that's okay. Really, the only times that I don't go with what's in the box is if it's just an absolute disaster, like it can't possibly work. A perfect example is Awaken Realms, Lords of Hellas. I'm looking at you. That thing is just an absolute mess. There's no way to get that thing going without lid lift. And even with baggies, it's just still an absolute disaster. So I wish they would do a better job with that. But there are a lot of companies that do a really nice job. Two perfect examples I can think of. And one of them is sort of not aftermarket, but it's an official aftermarket. That's the Terraforming Mars Big Box, which has a place for everything, everything in its place, and it fits absolutely perfectly another on a smaller scale is parks man Keymaster hit it out of the park with that one it's even got little indicators on there so you know exactly what goes in each spot because it's got like a little shape 
to show you what goes in the spot. I love that. I think that is so cool. But there are the rare occasions like Lords of Hellas where I just take all the stuff and I throw them in baggies and throw them back in the box. And fortunately for me, when Tim and I were in California, we inherited, uh, you probably heard the story before of when we bought this batch of games off of somebody uh, who basically inherited them from their ex-husband and we bought them cheap. And along with that came this like shipping crate of plastic baggies, which I still have sitting in like a closet in my house that I moved across, you know, the West Coast with me. And so I had this like massive amount of plastic baggies. So Tim, actually, if you ever do any baggies, let me know and I'll, I'll ship you, uh, <laughs> you a few hundred pounds of them. No, I'm good. I got plenty of baggies of my own. A couple of storage solutions I want to call out. First of all, I'm curious if a game comes with a storage solution. I think you know, I know your guys answer. Does that make any difference to you? Are you like, Oh, I'm going to buy this game because that was amazing storage solution. No, no one's going to do that. I think it's a nice, uh, icing on the cake, something like trekking the world has a very nice insert with it. So you just pop that out and it's ready to go. I think my favorite example is Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy, where everybody ships, everybody's resources, everybody's everything is just in their individually colored faction. And you just hand those out around the table and off you go. You're ready to go. So I do appreciate when a game has a nice game trays or any kind of well-done insert. I think that's very nice. But I'm not going to go and get a game just because it does. Yeah, I generally wouldn't either, although I do really appreciate it. Like I was thinking of when we played Distilled and it's got this nice little tray for all the labels so that you don't have to go digging through baggies and sort them all out. They're all sorted for you. And that's something that I feel like Brass Birmingham would have really benefited from. And I know you got an aftermarket insert on that one, Adam, but that one needed just to have all the stuff set up so that you just put it away and slide it back in the box when you're done. And all of a sudden... I don't know. Maybe I would buy brass if it had one of those. (laughs) Well, here's how some of our listeners answered. So Nim on Twitter said baggies. I remember one time my son opening a box of snack size baggies and then he saw the look of horror on my face. No, they're for the new games we bought. Yes, we are a a household of game (laughs) dedicated and snack dedicated baggies. I love it. Interesting. I've never bought I've never used like Ziplocs. I always use the the bags that come with games and, you know, some combination of ones that weren't used in other games and stuff like that. Because I feel like they have a little bit of a a game feel. Anytime I see somebody put Ziplocs in their box, it feels so it feels cheap to me. You can see the little Ziploc green lines or something. Yeah. You also have to cut a little hole in it so that it doesn't get that puffiness. Doesn't keep the air. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Dingers Play Games said the unsorted folks are agents of pure chaos. I respect them, but not as much as I fear them. (laughs) That's kind of you, Tim. You're kind of one of those agents of chaos. (laughs) <laughs> hey, I don't throw everything just back in the box. It's it's the stuff that doesn't need to be separated. Admit it. You can pick up a resource out of a pile of resources. It doesn't have to. All be uh, my fingers have to like scatter around five or six little bananas <laughs> and little meat chunks and little wheats. Oh, here's the brick I finally need. That took three seconds longer than it should have. Yeah. Welcome to Tim's post-apocalyptic world. <laughs> what game is it that you were playing that had bananas and meat chunks and I don't know, bread? <laughs> don't make me go through Board Game Geek and find one that has those resources. Uh, Luke Holt said 90% of the time it goes on in Ziploc baggies if the game doesn't come with enough storage for the pieces. But with games that I despised, like Sukiyami, then they get the mass wipe into the box treatment. Oh, but then do you feel good about giving that game away or selling it to somebody without with all the components all messed? I can't do that. I cannot do that. All right. Well, let's move on into our feature game today and let's hear a description of Revive. In Revive, one to four players are leaders of a far future civilizations of almost humans. An icy catastrophe has befallen the planet and the last surviving humans have moved underground and evolved in weird and wonderful ways. Now it's 5,000 years later and the planet is starting to thaw. And the hardy survivors have started venturing forth to reclaim the surface. Revive takes place on the frozen but warming surface of the world in the form of a large central board made up of hexes. The hexes are flippable tiles with a big frozen nothing on the top side but fresh terrain and valuable rewards underneath. Players will also interact with a complex player mat containing special faction abilities, citizens for reviving and colonizing the surface, and buildings for, well, building. Each player also has a machine made up of arcane circuits that can be unlocked for ever more powerful bonuses and abilities. The anatomy of a turn is deceptively simple. A player can take two actions from a short list of options, or they can rest. Actions include exploring new hexes, aka flipping board tiles, building new structures, 
or sending colonists out to repopulate crumbling ancient cities. Each provides benefits that will help players build a powerful engine. Players can also choose to play their follower cards, which are dual-purpose cards that can be slotted into their machine to provide resources, bonuses, or additional actions, but which also tie up those action spaces, making them unavailable for future use. Finally, players can rest. This allows them to recall their followers, reopen those action slots, and gain additional pass bonuses. Throughout all of this, certain actions and bonus spots will allow players to claim one of a limited number of artifact tiles, each of which provides an endgame point multiplier based on individual player goals. Once all the artifact tiles have been taken, each player gets one more turn and the game ends. Players will tally their scores, and the player with the highest score will be the winner. Revive was designed by Melga Meissner, Isla Svensson, Anna Wormland, and Christian Amundsen Ostby, and is published by Aporta Games. All right, great. Let's jump into the gameplay and mechanisms of Revive. This was all three of ours first play of the game, and we played on Tabletop Simulator this time around. First thing I'm going to talk about here is the the card play and how that works. I thought it was pretty nifty, pretty slick. So you're initially given a hand of I believe it's six cards and you have three cards that are out in your, they call it your active area. So that's kind of like three cards you can choose to use and they're multi-purpose. They have an icon at the top so you can use the top part of it or there's this icon or action at the bottom. So if you slot it on the top of your board, that'll leave the top half of the card exposed and you get to do whatever it says there. And similarly, you can slot it into the bottom of your board and you can do that icon there. And that seems pretty straightforward, pretty simple. But then you have these variations on that, these kind of upgrades, or you can choose to hibernate those guys that are in there. Or some of these cards allow you to slot an additional card under there so you can combo up the effects. There's also upgrades to these different slots that you go in. So as the game progresses, there's this whole puzzle of how can you effectively use these cards and slot them up and maybe send them to rest early. And those cards that you send to rest early, those are the cards that are going to come into your active area next time. So that whole card interplay upgrade slotting and cascading, and I thought that was a fun puzzle to work through. Yeah, it was really fun. And what was interesting, so some of the cards, especially your starting ones, mainly you were just going to get a couple of resources from them, although some of them had a, a you know a, another special ability. But just like a lot of deck builders, you could acquire additional cards. Usually when you were exploring a tile, you would get to acquire a, a card from a, a row. And those had some pretty strong abilities, some different effects, different abilities you could add to them. The cards were one of four different colors. And so as Adam was saying, you can combo them with the slots you're putting them into. And if the color matched the card you're putting in there, then you get the bonus on the slot, uh, kind of the the, the additional piece that you added into the slot below the card as well. So interesting ways to to build up an engine, to sometimes take advantage of it, sometimes realize, hey, I really need this card, even if it doesn't match with the color. So that was cool. One of the other things that was interesting here, though, is that it, it sounds like it's a deck builder, but it's more of a hand management game except that you only have some of your cards available and what was really clever here if you acquired a card it immediately was available for you to use right away so that was cool but then what happens when you rest is that you take all the cards you didn't use in that round and those are the cards that are going to be available for your next round so if you build up a really big hand in one half and then those go away the next round may be cheap uh, maybe a little bit less less powerful for you but there were some effects that would let you take the cards out of the slots you'd put them in and then put them in the discard pile so that they would be available for you to use again next round. So some really clever use of that. I, I enjoyed it more than I thought it was going to. Like it, it's not a deck build. You're not shuffling the cards. You always know what's in your rest pile or in your, you know, your starting pile. So you're going to swap them out between rounds. But it was still really fun to play with those and figure out how to take advantage of them. I thought that card play was a lot of fun too, especially that dynamic of getting cards in and out of those slots, which are part of your machine, which actually sounds pretty grisly when you think about it, putting people into a machine. doesn't sound like a good thing, but I'll just use that for shorthand. So when you're slotting these cards into your machine, you, they fill up the spot and they give you that benefit. One of the things that I thought was kind of interesting because at, at first, at least I misinterpreted it, we were questioning what would be the benefit. Like, Why was it so great that you could use those cards that let you pull someone out of a slot and move them elsewhere? Because my thought was, well, so what if I open up a spot? I'm almost out of cards here. That doesn't, you know, it's not going to help me out a whole lot because I don't have new cards to play into there. Well, for number one, 
as you go in, on in the game, you get more and more cards. So you end up do having rounds where you don't have enough spaces to put all the cards you want to play. But the other is it puts it back on deck to pull your next round. So you essentially get to play the same card two rounds in a row. And if you've got a really good card, that can be a really good thing to do. So I felt like I got some pretty good combos going there where I was able to play a card, get that one yanked off and put into the sleeping area and then pull it out again next round as opposed to the cards that ended up staying out on my mat or in my machine. And then I couldn't play next round and I had to wait another whole cycle in order to get them back out again. But I also want to take this opportunity talking about the cards to do a little bit of like a a soft right turn into the machine itself because I personally thought the machine was the highlight of this game. I thought it was so cool. But one, and I'll get back into more of the details of the machine and how it works later. But the one thing related to the cards that I really liked about the machine was that there are these little upgrades. Each, you have four slots and each one has a couple of little upgrade slots where you can put in these little tokens and each one provides you a benefit. And if you use that slot where the upgrade token is, not only do you get the benefit of what you play on the card that you slotted into there, but you get this little benefit on the on the token. So you could theoretically have a slot where you're playing your card, getting some benefit out of that card, and then getting three additional benefits in that same slot. I thought that was so satisfying. I love that. This kind of folds nicely into the asymmetry of it. While you guys were focused on building up those slots the individual leaders have a little bit of asymmetry. My guy focused on getting some crystals and then I could turn in those crystals up to three crystals for one of each resource. Generally, those slots you're talking about, Chris, gave you an additional resource of some variety. So while you guys were focusing on that, I was just focusing on getting crystals and turning those into a bunch of resources. So the asymmetry here was kind of nice. Before we talk about that central board which we haven't even mentioned yet, I'm going to stick with this whole disc covering upage mechanism, which kind of reminds me of like any clip sort of thing or a, a Gaia project sort of thing, but not really. These are all different. Once a disc goes and covers something up, it stays out there and it stays covered. It's not coming back. So you have discs on your machine board that Chris was talking about and on your leaderboard. And as you play your leader tokens, your faction ability, so to speak, you take a disc off and you cover up this little point tracker. And as that's getting covered up, you gain these little bonuses from there too. So that's just a nice, rewarding, simple, tactile mechanism that I really enjoyed. So you get those from your faction board and also from your machine board itself. Man, it turns out there's a lot going on here because like I said, we haven't talked about the main board. We're still talking about the machine board where you can move, you can move these little pawns over your machine board and get little benefits and remove some discs as that's going on as well. So that whole disc coverage system, I love that mechanism in games. And here they did it very nicely. One of my favorite types of uh, of games doesn't even have a name for it. And it's this mechanism where you're taking a turn, doing an action, and then it passes to the next person. And then when you're done, you're, you pass, right? When you run out of things to do, you pass. Or when you, uh, in this case, when you run out of things, you rest. There's a whole bunch of games that do this. I'm thinking of things like Everdell and Lost Ruins of Arnak and stuff like that. One of my favorite parts of these games, though, is when they configure, give you clever ways to break the system, to kind of like break out of the boundary of those couple actions you can take. In this case, there are five actions you can take, and you can take one or two on your turn. And you know, they're pretty straightforward. One of them is going to be sliding these cards in, for example, and Chris mentioned the others in the rules description. But then there's a few ways that you can sometimes get a little extra. You can get a little bonus. And one of those is that machine Adam was talking about, where you start with one electricity resource in the middle of your machine. And as you start to unlock spaces on this machine, it opens up different powers that you can activate by spending one of these lightning bolts and you do it as a free action. So as you start to build up this machine and get more energy you can spend, all of a sudden you can be taking a turn and be like, man, I really just need one more crystal. Oh, cool. I'll just throw this lightning bolt over there or I'll flip this crate I picked up earlier or I'll do this conversion from a crystal to a book or whatever. And so I just love when games give you that little extra jolt that if you can, you're just, you need that one more thing and you can find a, a way to get it. And it was really fun in this game, really fun to find those little, little combos to make my, my turn just a little bit bigger. 
I want to say more about that machine because I love that machine. I think I was also the only one who really leaned into trying to maximize it in this game. And so I think I got to see a little bit more of what it did than you guys. So two things about the machine. One is the way that you unlock the various benefits that it can provide you. There are three different resource colors here. There was green, which I think was books. There was yellow, which was food. And there was gray, which was gears or technology. And there were these three tracks and they were kind of jutting off in different directions, kind of made to look like circuits in your machine. And each one was a different color. And interspersed throughout there, there were these little junctions where there were circles. And you would move your token along those lines, your colored token that matched the color of that track when certain things happened. Like, for example, there were uh, cards that would let you move along one or more of those tracks. And every now and then you would get to a spot where you not only uh, you move to a new location, but that location had these little blue discs. And so the little blue discs you got to take off of those spots, which opened up those benefits that Tim was talking about. And you got to place those tokens on a score tracker the way that Adam was talking about. And so this is very much like a scythe, which is there's a beautiful mechanism. I love where you you take something off of one spot where it opens up an op opportunity and then you cover something else that gives you an additional benefit. In this case, it was primarily points, but there were other things you get along that score tracker, too. That was how you moved around your machine. The other thing that I want to talk about with the machine was the types of benefits provided because they got progressively stronger as you went. And they were really a ton of fun. At the beginning, they were really simple things like maybe the ability to extend your movement by one or get one resource of any kind you wanted. But the farther you went, the stronger those benefits got. Some of those, you had to move a certain number of spots on different tracks. So you had to be on two different tracks to open up a spot. And some, toward the end of those tracks, even got you the ability to get one of these ever-elusive artifact tiles. And some of them even gave you endgame scoring once you got to the very end. And then you max out. And then every time you up on that track, you get some benefits. So then it was just like, you know, all bets are off. Crazy resources all over the place or points or whatever. It, that, was, that was another one of these things in this game that was just so very, very satisfying. So as you're talking about this, Chris, those are basically configurable tech tracks that have a little more going on with these junctions and stuff. So what a neat way to do that and a clever way to intertwine these tech tracks with, uh, I don't know, a thematic mechanism, if you will. So a lot of those movements that you're talking about to upgrade your, your machine come from the board too. And again, before I go to the board, I'm going to talk about another way to put stuff out on the board by looking at our your leader faction, your individual your leaders. So on those are these buildings and these uh, little people. So you can go and populate cities on the map. What else can you do? You can explore these tiles on the map, and you can also build buildings on the map. So one way to move, upgrade your machine, like Chris was talking about, was build these buildings next to those colors, either a green little chevron or a yellow chevron or a gray chevron, and that would give you that movement. And as those are uncovered, if your building happened to be adjacent to another one, you get to move up and upgrade on that track. I specifically did a lot more of the populating, whereas Chris really explored his machine. I explored the, the separate kind of tech track, which was populating, putting my little characters out there on the map. Each one of those gave you some little boost, whether it's instant ability or a more beneficial resource conversion or some kind of something. One of mine was another machine that I could use one of those lightning bolts and get another crystal, which parlayed nicely with my initial faction ability. So a lot going on there. And I think that is all the different ways to get stuff from your player board out there onto the, the common map that everybody's exploring and I'll let Tim take it from there, wherever he wants to start and finish with that. Yeah. Well, I actually really like this common map area. It reminded me a little bit of Gaia Project, where as you're moving stuff out, you've got a little bit of range that you've got to deal with in different types of buildings. And as you're taking the buildings off your, your player mat, you might get extra benefits for them. But this was really clever. These uh, tiles, these exploration tiles you flipped over that had different benefits. They might have a lake next to it, which had some adjacency rules that would get you a special benefit. Or they might have these chevrons, like if it was a mountain or a forest or a, a plains, like Adam was talking about. But uh, And then the, the little cities where you can place your people. And then out on the four corners of the board, 
are what they call, I think, like large cities. And so these are where you could place a person out and it would have some big endgame scoring benefit. And of course, this was our first play, so I didn't really think too too much of it. But I could tell how that is how you're going to really like set your strategy, I think, in the future is you're going to say like, hey, th- based on my faction, that's the corner I want to be headed to. And am I going to be racing somebody else for it? Am I going to be working myself my own? And it was really that was fun. Uh, a lot of uh, interaction with the other players on the board, meaning like there was definitely beneficial spaces. Sometimes you could drop a work right in between three chevrons. Sometimes you know, you weren't, or a, a building rather, sometimes you wouldn't get that much benefit. You could build these large buildings, which would double all the benefits surrounding it. Um, but you're obviously racing the other people for it. And if somebody else placed a worker in a city you want to go to, you'd have to pl- pay them an extra book if you went to the city afterwards. So there's a little bit of a race element there. Uh, I thought this was all, it, it worked really well. It worked really smoothly and it comboed nicely with the, the machine activities and your player board activities and just everything tied really well together there. So clever mix of a variety of mechanisms. here. One of the things that was fun about interacting with that board was the way that you got to interact with a flipped tile. There's a couple of different things you could do out there, the exploring or the building. So the exploring, you got a bonus for flipping over a tile. Usually you paid a bunch of resources and you got a, to get to draw a card. You got a few points and then you know there might've been other bonuses there as well. But you didn't get any placement bonuses associated with that tile unless you had a building in that location or a building adjacent to that location. One of the things you get to do when you flip over the tile is you also get to decide how you want to orient that tile because there's two different directions that you could do that. And so you got to be kind of careful because if you put that tile, you flip that tile over, somebody else could jump in there behind you and snatch it up if you don't get in there fast and build in the spot that's most advantageous. So uh, that that was one thing that I was very mindful of was trying to make the flipping my first action of a round because if not, you know, Adam or Tim or Steve is going to might jump in there behind me and take the most beneficial parts of that slot. So I still would have gotten the benefit from flipping the tile, but I might not have been optimizing the terrain that was on the other side of that tile. I want to jump into something you said, Chris, you just reminded us that, you know, we were, you can take two actions on a turn, which is a little unique for a game like this. Usually, you know, most of these games, you take one action, you move around. And I think there's two reasons they did that. And and there's a positive, but also maybe a little negative here. I think that the two reasons they did it, one is because when you take a turn, that's just going to give you some resources, that would be a boring turn. So at least now you always have the chance to set yourself up for a bigger action. But the other has to do with that exploration, because if you went out and explored a space and then somebody else could be the first one to move in there and build a building in the most optimal place, that wouldn't feel good either. So I think it makes a lot of sense why they did the two option choice here. I always hated that in Res Arcana, which is a game I like a lot, where a lot of the turns it's like, flip a guy and get one resource. Okay, it's your turn, right? That's a boring turn. So I think Revive kind of fixes that a little bit. The negative is that it was really easy to forget whether you take in your second action. And, and you know, Terraforming Mars lets you take two actions, but that's almost always just play a card. So you you play a card and then you play a second card. And in this case, your your turns, your your action you take could trigger several things and it could be, you know, a number of combos. And then you're like, wait a second, was that my first action or did I do something else already? So that, you know, that was a little bit just a tad clunky, I would say. And I think there's going to be opportunities for people to accidentally mess up or accidentally cheat in this game because of that. They do give you some little markers that you're supposed to use to put on your your player aid that shows the actions. And that might work if you got in the habit of doing it. But I would say it's just as likely someone's going to forget to mark it and then be like, wait, I only put one there. So, you know, I think there's a little risk of that just mixing people up once in a while. Yeah, good point, Tim. You can do a lot in one turn, I think is what you're getting at. So, it's a big difference if you're like, shoot, is this my first turn or second turn? Because you could still do so much on that subsequent turn. So it's, yeah, that's going to become a big factor is remembering if this is your first or second turn or having everybody keep an eye on it. Anyway, yeah, you mentioned the map kind of reminded you of Gaia Project. I think the other game, Clans of Caledonia, that's also compared with Gaia Project a lot, especially with those four corner kind of the bonuses there. But you're right. I didn't see kind of the corner that you were going towards until sort of near the end of the game. And I saw it was going to give you, I think, three per faction token that you had revealed. And I was like, dang it, why haven't I been noticing that one? So I made a shift and I was like, I better go populate there, even though Tim's already there, because that's going to give me a ton of points. So yeah, I think that was interesting. What else about the map? I like how these exploration tiles we didn't mention yet, but some of them give you a little glimpse, a little clue as to what's going to be under there, either a little 
fraction of a lake is exposed or some of them have like a fraction of a city exposed. So you might be wanting to populate with your little characters from your player board. So you want to go explore a city one. Steve was looking for cities. Oh, I can't find a city. Dang it. I can't find a city. Well, uh, and then he also forgot that you could populate other people's cities for a little bit extra. Anyway, I like that that gives you that little sneak preview of what's under there. That's, I don't know, we haven't touched on theme yet, but I think that's a nice little touch. Well, I think it's a perfect time to jump into the the production and the theme here. And I just want to call out really quickly, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff to say, but my favorite part is as you're turning over, as you're exploring this map, everyone starts from the middle. There's this one little like sinkhole in the middle that you're climbing out of, and it's just snow all around. And I didn't realize it at first, but, you know, you've explored the first tile and then the next one. And as we're taking a, a like kind of a look back at the board, you know, halfway through, you can just see that the the ice is melting. It's like, you know, the snow caps are melting, the ice is. And it just reminds me of like being in the Midwest in the winter when the spring when springs come in and there's some snow out on the, the fringes still, but a lot of it's starting to melt away. And it gave a really cool visual effect that I really wasn't expecting and haven't seen done quite so well in uh, in this type of tile flipping or tile laying game. I got to agree with that 100%. I was completely immersed in this world. I completely bought into this idea of the melting ice. And like you said, Tim, you start melting and it's melting outwards. So it actually has this really realistic uh, kind of effect because it's not melting, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. It's kind of going outward as you spread. People are thawing the, the earth around them. And I just thought that was absolutely wonderful. One thing that wasn't absolutely wonderful was the fact that there was a very limited art set. The art itself was very good. I liked it. It was super enjoyable, but each faction had exactly one piece of art associated with it. So if you had a yellow faction guy, you had the same yellow faction guy over and over and over and over again. And for a gray faction, the little robot dudes, you had the same robot guy showing up over and over and over and over again. And unfortunately, that had the exact opposite effect of me. It would be like if you were watching a movie that was great, except the same actor played all the different roles. You'd be like, what? This doesn't, it, it, t- it took me out of the story. The map put me right into that story and I felt like I was there. And then I flipped these cards that were the same person over and over and over again. And it took me back out a little. I won't ding it too hard because the art was good and I I understand, you know, art has got to be expensive, you know, artists got to get paid and you had to keep, especially for a game with a relatively big production like this, they probably wanted to keep the cost down a little bit, but I gave that a little bit of a ding, very offset, I thought, by the very big kudos I give them for the the exceptionally well done board. Yeah, I got to agree with you guys. I thought the theme here was fantastic. I don't have much else to say besides what you guys have already said. The one thing that's a little strange to me with these artifacts, which is kind of leads into a set collection thing. They have the the different colors, three different colors, a purple, orange, and white sort of skull or dragon egg looking things that you're collecting as this game is going on. I'm not sure of the backstory there, but that leads into some in-game scoring for a set collection bonus of those. And that was confusing. I don't know why you would go for a different color of one more than the other. So I just concentrated on one and that ramped me up with a, a huge ton of points that that's one thing we didn't mention in the uh, the mechanisms part which was a little strange i got just 30 percent of my points were from that in-game scoring so hmm. that's one part that kind of was confusing to me as well well i agree that the production on those relics was really weird i didn't feel like they matched well on the board i felt like the way that there was a bunch of them piled up in the top corner of the board didn't fit thematically even though they were supposed to be like things set in the snow they didn't look like anything that i I would imagine would be a relic in this world. So not sure of the choice there. Maybe I have to go in and read the story and figure it out. I did want to call out one other thing on the production though, and that is that the reason this game is even on my radar is the first time I saw a picture of those machine boards. I loved it. It's this great board with looks like you know a bunch of moving tracks around a spiral. And it 100% reminds me of playing Final Fantasy 12 and the old upgrade system in that where you would be able to pick uh, you know the different path your upgrades go into. And uh, I always love that system. I always thought it should be used in a board game and it feels like they, they pulled it off really well here and it looks really cool. I think they're kind of like dual like you know we played on tabletop simulator so i didn't get to hold the production but i think they're like nice like dual layer boards and stuff too so seems like a really cool production 100 agree with chris though on the artwork what a shame that there wasn't more art here because the, the card play was so fun otherwise and the artwork style was so great 
that uh, it would have been really cool to see more variety in the cards. Well, Tim, you're right. They are dual layer player boards. And judging from the pictures I've seen on BGG, they are epic two layer player boards. They look really nice. I would love to get my hands on one of those. The one question I've got is whether they're actually triple layer boards where you can slot the cards in for real or whether you have to put the cards underneath. I'm guessing that it's probably you have to put them underneath because Adam and I, before the episode, were looking at some pictures online and somebody actually put little felt feet on the bottom of their player boards, which I'm assuming is because it makes it easier to slot the cards in underneath. Small price to pay, still really nice looking, and I, I really enjoy those. I'd love to play with the real life ones, even better if they were three layer. I want to talk about the interface here and the iconography. I thought that was all pretty gosh darn fantastic. Usually I'm slow on this kind of thing. What does this symbol mean? What does this symbol mean? Here by two or three rounds into it, I had a good sense of what was going on. There's a reference sheet on the back or near the back of the rule book. The way you track your resources is pretty fantastic here. It's just a little a little peg. The most your machine can hold is six of each type and three crystals. So that's super easy to track. The way you slot in these little tokens, machine tokens onto your player board, that fills in nicely. That's a satisfying circle to fill that in. And then the way you're putting these lightning bolts out, it's super clear what's going on. As long as you can keep track of this is your first or second turn, I thought everything was presented here very well. The way your leaderboard even has this little know, loose triangle that sort of slots into your machine is nice as well. So great job with the interface. As far as I'm concerned, I thought it was lovely. Yeah, I 100% agree. All right, well, let's jump into our final question. And that is, would you request to play this game again? I would absolutely request to play this game again. I had a lot of fun playing it. I was a little bit bamboozled about why I had so many points. I came out way ahead on this one. And usually that's not me on a first play. Usually I'm the guy that's like, I don't know what's going on here. So I feel bad that I stumbled into this combo that I could exploit super well. And I'm sure with more plays, everybody would catch up and we'd battle each other out or figure out ways to exploit our own player factions and our machine board there. But yes, I was thinking about this one a lot. I had a lot of fun playing it. It gave me a lot of a lot of joy, a lot of satisfaction, the way the art and the theme and the production the gameplay itself all intertwine in this board where we're all interacting with each other 100% would request to play this one again. You call out, I think, something that's really important about this game, and that is that there is a ton of variety and a ton of opportunity for imbalance, I think, here. for Anywhere from you know the player boards are unique and the player powers you can unlock are unique, the way you, you can build up your machines in different ways, the, the, the deck building that goes out here, the things that you happen to uncover out on the board, and how all that matches together with the corner pieces. I loved it. I absolutely loved the game and I loved the the fun of trying to figure out the puzzle. You know, what's the puzzle? What what am I trying to what can I accomplish? How can I optimize this? The, the end game scoring card I had, you know, different pot- potential objectives there. So many fun decisions to go here, but I think there are going to be some people that are really turned off by this. And this reminded me in a lot of ways of playing the game Tapestry. Some people really don't like tapestry because they complain about the balance. Hey, you know, the civilization isn't balanced. This tapestry card isn't balanced. If you happen to get this combination, it's not balanced. I've never cared. I've always loved playing tapestry, even if it seemed like somebody was a runaway or runaway leader. And I felt the same way about Revive. Like I it was pretty clear to me that Adam had a much bigger game that was happening. And I still had fun playing my game out and trying to do the best I could. And so I think there's a risk that if you really care about balance, if you feel like, hey, only the most, you know, only the best players should be able to win this game. I think sometimes somebody's going to luck into some cool combos and pull it off. And I'm totally okay with that. But if you're not, you know, that might be a turnoff for you. So just to keep a little bit of suspense here, instead of just answering the question, I'm going to tell it like a story. So this game started out and I was having the best time ever. All these things that I was doing were so satisfying. The first couple times that I moved around the track on my machine, I was thrilled. Every time I opened up one of those spots on the machine, I was thrilled. Every time I flipped over a new tile on the board and got to do a placement bonus, when I built a building there or got the benefit of being able to pull another card, I was really, really thrilled. Then as things started going on through the game, I flattened out a little bit. I felt like I was doing the same things over and over again. Like the, the benefits on the the tiles on the board were pretty samey. And some of the benefits on the cards felt a little bit samey. And I have to admit, I didn't love the scoring in this game. 
as much as I like the things you were doing to get that scoring, like the set collection kind of thing with the artifacts and the idea that it was about, you know, like for me, I had a thing where I got a point for every lightning bolt I collected. Kind of like, an okay, who cares? That's not that exciting. The artifacts were a little bit weird. And those big cities on the corners, same sort of thing. It was almost like, uh, okay, well, you're going to get all these points for whatever the thing happens to be. It, it just didn't strike me as thematically as exciting as it could have been. But there was a lot of cool things you were doing to get there. And so by the end of the game... I was starting to feel a little bit more neutral on it. I was also starting to feel pretty tired. We were playing a pretty late game last night. And so I I kind of went to bed going, you know, I, I'm going to have to see how I feel about this one in the morning and reflect on the game and see how I how I really feel about it, how much of it, how much of my what I thought about it was influenced by those couple of things regarding scoring and just the fact that I was getting a little bit tired at the end. Well, I woke up this morning really really want to play this game again so my answer is a resounding yes i i really want to play this game again and i'm really curious to see how i feel on a second play because and i have a feeling that somebody in this group is probably going to end up getting this game so we'll probably get a chance to play it again and see how i feel about the scoring and do i do i feel any differently about it on a second play but a lot of satisfying stuff to do in a first play of this game, and I would love to play it again. Yeah, one thing we didn't even mention is that there's a sort of a campaign that unlocks a couple mm-hmm. different modules and different little knickknacks and ho-hums and doodads that add to the game, add a little spice, a little salt, so some advanced rules. Is, there's a little switch on the machine board where those, one of those rules will let you do different things with that switch as the game goes on. And then there's a, a sun side and a moon side to each of these player factions too. So that does some different stuff. So a whole lot to mix and match here with this game. Going back to the scoring, Chris, you're right. That's the one thing that kind of confounds me a little bit. If I was playing against me, like I don't know what I would have done to prevent me scoring that many points. So just my little in-game scoring card was for, I think, the orange artifacts. I was able to collect all of those. So maybe if you guys knew how big I was going to score, you would have taken one or two of those. But I ended up with five of those and I had six people out colonies. So five times six, if we did it right, that's 30 points right there of in-game scoring, which again, ended up being about 30% of my points. So I don't, that's the one thing that's a little head scratching for me. Well, it's interesting because I stayed up about two hours after we finished that game last night, online shopping, trying to find this at a decent deal. <laughs> we looked at it. I think the MSRP on this game is about $80. And everywhere I looked was either sold out or it was like way overpriced. So um, I'm, I'm suspecting that the US you know, print run of it just sold out quickly because it had a little bit of buzz when it came in. I'm hoping they'll get another print run out here and it'll be a little bit broader focus because I do plan to pick this game up. It's funny because it did a lot of things that I like in games and I was telling these guys as we were getting close to the end of playing like I think this game just fired like three games in my collection like there were so many fun things going on and what was interesting too is that it had a lot of stuff to do but I don't think it'd be a hard game to teach either it was really simple actions you could teach and then stuff kind of happened along the way you know you unlock this thing okay what's that icon really easy to kind of get people into so I think I could teach this I think it's got a cool table presence and I think it's just going to be fun to play I think this is going to be another tapestry for me um, and you know I love tapestry so yeah uh, hopefully it's back around again and I will be buying this and we will all get the, a chance to play it again when we get together in person um, nice if possible so all right well I think that will wrap up our conversation on revive we'll talk about some games that have been on our table right after this All right, welcome back. Adam, what's been on your table this week? I got to play a game called Acropolis, and this was via Board Game Arena. I think one of our listeners and frequent uh, players of games with us, Chris Prime, invited uh, myself and Chris, this Chris right here that I'm talking to right now, and one of his other friends to play this on Board Game Arena. And I don't know if it's in beta or still in alpha, but it worked pretty well. We were running through the moves. And I got to play it twice. So on the first time through, it was fun. Organized some tiles, put some stuff here. So it's a tile laying game. If you didn't figure that out, because I didn't say that yet, I should guess talk about 
how you play this game. So it's these tiles. It's um, three hexagons together, which form like a little, I don't know, a triangle of hexagons. So they're all the same shape. It's not like three hexagons in a line. It's not Ark Nova style where you can, you know, imagine all the different ways you could put three hexagons. Nope. It's just three hexagons in a triangular shape is the best I can describe it here on audio. And um, basically there's different colors that each of those hexagons can be red, blue, green, white, and maybe I'm missing another color in there, but I think that about come purple. There's also purple. There's different rules for the way you can put those hexagons together and you score different points based on how you put those together. And as you, you can also stack them on top of each other. So there's up and down and a sprawling nature to this. So if you stack them on top of each other, you get some little gray cubes to spin on the premium tiles as they come out, or, you know, just as you have more options in the market that you can spend these gray cubes on to buy the more preferable triangle of hexagons. So this goes through, I don't know how many rounds, about 10 or 12 rounds, something like that. And as you're building this out, you're trying to keep in mind, oh, these red hexagons need to be on the outskirts of my city. And these yellow hexagons, neither of these yellow hexagons can be touching each other. Also, as you're going through, some of these white hexagons have stars on them, but it'll be colored stars. So maybe you buy one that has two red stars on it. That's going to multiply the point bonus that you get for those properly placed individual red hexagons. I keep saying hexagons. I don't know what other word I can use to, to say it, but that's what it is. So you're trying to buy stars that will multiply the points for the tiles that you have laid in the correct fashion. So it's something kind of like, I don't know, I got a little bit of a Cascadia feel to it or something like that. So it's light and simple and quick. And once I figured out, oh, you can also build vertically too. Thanks for that little tip, Chris Prime, <laughs> that helped me out. And I was able to work this puzzle out a little more fluidly and have a lot more fun with it. So Chris, I mentioned you played this with us. What do you think on your two plays? I don't know if you played since then as well. No, I just played those two games and and I had some fun with it. I I did probably the worst way to play a game, which is to just sort of play it by, you know, sense of smell and not really learn the rules. So I sort of <laughs> picked up some of that as I went along and it was fun enough that I'd be happy to play it again, but it wasn't, you know, it was light breezy fun. It wasn't so exciting that I felt compelled to go out and like immerse myself in the rules of the game and really get good at it. So I definitely, I would play it again. It, it was pretty simple. You know, it was basically about understanding placement bonuses and then, you know, making the most of them. And, and so, yeah, I, you know, I tend to find these like simple tiling games to be, to feel a little bit redundant to each other. And so I, I, I don't, it's like they don't often stand out. Do you guys feel like this stood out to some of your typical tiling, you know, puzzles? I compared it to Cascadia. I got, you know, yeah. so, you know, it didn't stand out much compared to Cascadia. It seems like this one has, maybe has different rule, like scoring sets. I like how Cascadia has different scoring sets or like different bonuses for like a Salmon River or, you know, you want the brown tiles to be like this or you want to have this sort of pattern going on. I think this one, at least the ver the version we play in Board Game Arena, just has a, this is how you get most points for green tiles. This is how you get most points for blue tiles. So are you in a good position to buy the best tile for your little city that you got going on? And do you would you rather look at Northwest Wilderness or Ancient Greek Cities? Pick whichever one seems most appealing. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, I'll have to try this on Board Game Arena at some point. So the game that's been on my table this week was Ra. And this is a game I have talked about on the game before. This is a Reiner Knizia game from 1999. But I just got the big old deluxe Kickstarter version of this. That's all you do is kickstart games, Tim. That's all you do. <laughs> With Eno Tools, beautiful artwork and really, really cool graphic design. And I thought I'd come back and just fill you guys in a little bit. First of all, I, you know, I wanted to bring Ra to, I just got it right before we went to Sedona County. I wanted to bring Sedona County and Chris and Adam both vetoed it. They said, that sounds terrible. I don't want to play it. And you guys really missed out. Uh, we played it. It plays up to six players. We played with five players the other day and everybody had a blast with this game. I got to tell you, this deluxe edition is insane because the tiles that you're pulling out of a bag, which you're going to be bidding on are probably a good two by two inches and they're a nice like quarter inch thick wood like solid wood blocks so that 
the the box is huge because it's got this massive cloth bag full of these tiles. There's probably a hundred of them in this bag. So it's just this huge bag of tiles you're reaching in and pulling these big wooden blocks out of. So what you're going to do is you'll, you'll, you'll pull it, one of these tiles out of a bag and put it up in this big auction row. And you can do that or you can basically start an auction. But most of the time what's going to happen is people are going to pull these out in two ways an auction starts. One is if somebody pulls a raw tile out of the bag, it's this red tile, then you throw that away and an auction starts. And it starts from the person to the left of who pulled that tile out and the first person. And everybody starts with three bidding chips of different numbers. So the first person could say, hey, I'm bidding this number. And then the next person can try to beat them. And everyone has one time around the table. Now, you it's all visible what chips everybody has. So you know if somebody can beat you. But the question is, do they spend their highest chip? And is it worth giving one of their three auction chips for that round to for this for what the set is up there? So sometimes you're throwing a really low in one in there, hoping you can get a cheap value here. The other thing that happens aside from taking these tiles is you'll also get whatever auction chip is set out on the board to start with. And so oftentimes you're, you're going to bid a little bit higher because the auction chip you get from the middle of the board with that auction is going to be used in the next round, which might make your next round more valuable. Now, when you take these tiles off the board, uh, they go on two sides of this, this nice little player board you've got, and they kind of slot into the side of it. And the tiles all score in different ways. Like, for example... If you get one of these civilization tiles, then you don't lose five points at the end of the round. And if you can get at least three different ones, you gain five points. If you gain four different ones, you gain 10 points. So everybody wants to get at least one of those because otherwise you're going to lose points. On the other hand, there are these monument tiles you can get. There are eight different types in the in the bag, and they score just at the end of the game. But if you manage to collect three of the same type, you get points. Or if you manage to you know collect the seven different types, you get a bunch of points. So there's just different ways these tiles collect. So you're always trying to go for these things that will benefit your like little puzzle that you're putting together. Another cool one is that there are these Nile tiles that will go on one side of your board and those collect up over the course of the game. But the only way you can score those is if you get at least one flood tile on a round. So you could have six Nile tiles in the second round and everyone else is bidding and taking the flood tiles from you. You don't score those at all. But if you can manage to pull just that one flood tile. So you can see there's a lot of variance in how important an auction is for you to win versus what somebody else wants and how much you want to block them from it. So I mentioned that sometimes the, this auction will start because you pull a raw tile out of the bag. But the other thing you can do instead of just pulling a tile out of the bag on your turn is you can declare raw. And there is this massive wooden raw figure that you pick up and you pound it on the table and you go raw. And then an auction starts. And it's a blast. Every time somebody does it, you're like, no, I wanted to get back to me. I wanted to, I wanted one more tile out of there. So it's a really fun, like interactive auction that's all open information except for your points. As you gain points over the course of the game, that's hidden um, so that everybody you know, doesn't really know who, what you're competing against. And yeah, it's, it's just a blast. And, and the production's really cool here. There's this player board in the middle. One of the complaints about the old version of Raw was that you had these tiles that scored different ways, but you had to check the, rep, the rule book. There was no way, you know, there's no reference. Well, this nice player board that, you know, Tool created, you slot the tiles in the side and they all clearly show, you know, like, in, in one type of tile, it might give you, if you have the most um, of a type, you're going to get five points. If you have the least, you get negative two points. So all the scoring for each of these different tiles is, is spelled out on the player board. And once you know the iconography, it's really easy. Everybody picked it up in like three seconds and everybody was raving about how beautiful everything looked and how, how the iconography just made perfect sense. So Ra was a blast. This production is amazing. I'm so glad I backed it on Kickstarter because it is one of the most fun games I've played in a long time. All right, Tim, I heard you talk about it. I heard you say you're going to pick this thing up and you're going to say raw and it's fun. Why is it fun? I don't get it how it's fun. What? So all right, I, I see the player boards. Everybody has some numbers. What do you, why would someone call raw? Well, because, so for example, the person who, who calls raw is going to be the last one that gets to bid. So they get to make the final choice. Anyone else who bids might try to sneak in with a lower number, but you can always bid higher. The last person uh, so basically, the person that declared the auction is going to have the best opportunity to win that auction. So that's why you would declare raw. Now, of course, if you don't have a higher number than someone else, you might not, but they would have to throw away their highest number, for example, in order to take it from you. The numbers go from like one to 16. So let's say that your player board, you're sitting with a one, a three, and a nine. And the next person's sitting with like a four, a seven, and a, and a 15. So you know that they could beat you with the 15, but if they throw that 15 out there, they're giving away their best number for a future auction. Um, so it is surprisingly interesting choices about where you're sitting at the table and who declared raw on what you're going to bid. So if you win the auction, you get 
the number you get the number what do you get what do you get if you win the auction yeah you get all the tiles that were up in that row so as i mentioned everybody's pulling out a tile every turn when an auction happens there's a whole bunch of tiles or could be a whole bunch of tiles up for auction so you might be picking up six tiles you might be picking up two tiles um, it just depends on when the auction's declared, but you're getting a whole bunch of tiles that may or may not work with your specific board or that you don't want someone else to get because it's going to give them lots of points. So you're you're potentially getting a whole bunch of bonuses for this. And you get the, the number from the previous auction. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So the, that's, again, really cool choice because you might be like, hey, I'm going to bid my 16 because I want these four tiles that are up there, but there's a one in the middle. And that means the next round, you you only get three bids per round. So once you've spent your three tokens, your bidding tokens... Um, the ones that you've taken back get flipped over and then they get turned back up in the next round. So I could start the next round. This happened to me in the last round of the game. I ended up with like a one, a three and a five Oof. out of the 16 numbers. So as you can imagine, I didn't win any good auctions and it totally crushed me at the end of the game. But if I planned a little bit better, it would have uh, it would have really paid off. So it's it's really fun decisions and really good. It's a really interesting economy about what things are valued because of the potential negative points you can get for not having stuff or for for having you know, like the points you could get for having the right mix of things. Um, it, it just, I think, you guys have played Sushi Go, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Or Chris, I know you have. Yeah. You know how Sushi Go has some some like really simple scoring mechanisms at the end of the round. Like, you know, if you have the most of this type, you're going to get points. If you have um, three of one thing, you're going to get points. Ra's scoring reminds me a lot of Sushi Go, but the mechanism for how you acquire these tiles creates a really fun atmosphere, a really exciting moments when you're just hoping that somebody doesn't bid just a little bit higher than you. Um, you know what else it reminded me of, Adam, actually, was high society. Okay. In the way that, you know, you you want to bid to win an auction, but you're giving up those cards that you now no longer have at the end of the round. Yeah. And if you have the least amount of cards in your hand at the end, you're going to lose. This felt like that because of when you're giving up your good scoring tiles, you're not going to have them bid later in right. the round and could potentially really crush you on the next round. I was going to be a little bit more charitable and say that I was feeling a little bit more of like Nadavalier there with your limitation on bidding based on the coins that you're able to generate because that game is actually fun. That's, you know, that's great. Chris, that's actually a great example. And to be honest, I would say now that you've mentioned it, I think there's a lot of comparisons to be made to Nadavalier. I'm I'm not sure that you'd have the same fun with this, but I honestly, it's probably a better game to be honest. Raz Raz probably a little bit more fun and more replayable than the Dabbler is. So now the deluxe, you have the deluxe edition, is that right? Yeah, Tim. Yep. I I took a quick peek. It looks like it's going for ninety bucks right now. What What'd you pay for it on the Kickstarter? I think I paid more than that because I also got like the add-on metal coin. So I think I was all in for about a hundred bucks, maybe 120 with shipping. And this is, again, it's a big box and it's, it's ridiculously luxurious components. There is a retail version of this, I believe that's going to use more like your standard thick cardboard chips and stuff like that. It's still going to be a great game. I promise you. But this, this production is so over the top, Chris, probably the best production of any game I've ever seen. And it's a, you know, it's a fairly, it's a 30, 40 minute bidding slight party game and it's worth it. I'm so glad I got it. It looks cool. It, it does look freaking cool. So final verdict, does this game rock or did it leave you feeling rotten? I think we already <laughs> know the answer to that. Okay. So it, it did rock, but I also have to tell you the story that every single time someone picked up that token and said, raw, then my wife would go, Ra 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 <laughs> doing the Lady Gaga sign, nice. and yeah. So again, it led to some fun moments. You know, it really a party atmosphere around this. Everybody loved it. It was all you know fairly newish people that like playing games, but we're usually playing kind of party games or really light strategy games. This was the hit of the night. Everybody nice. loved it. So. Yeah, really fun game. I think you guys would actually dig this. Chris, maybe maybe it's a stretch to say you dig it, but I think you might tolerate it. Yeah, I'd like to try this one. So my table has been unusually active this week with my family. And part of the reason for that is because it was a big, big grande week for buying new games for me, largely inspired by SedonaCon. I bought myself a copy of Skull because, I mean... It is just that, you know, it's not it's not a game that I'm going to pick out for the the centerpiece of a game night. But, man, there's some fun party game vibes happening there. And I've actually got a big family get together that's happening in the summer. So I wanted to have a copy of that to bring with me. My family and I played it a few times. My son actually had a friend over and he said, Dad, can we play Skull? And I was like, heck, yeah, we can play Skull. So we played a game of Skull with one of his little friends 
And it's just a super fun game, really light, some goofy bluffing going on there. And you get to great satisfaction of like flipping the skull over in someone's face and saying, you just picked my skull. So there's that. Second was Smartphone Inc., which the first time I played it, I thought this is going to be horrible and had a great time. Second time I played it, I thought, what was I thinking the first time? This has got to be horrible and played it and had a great time. Third time which is when I owned it, I was like, I got to own this game because it is just too good. It's such a streamlined game, so thinky, and yet such a, I mean, I think with a teach and with my wife absolutely overthinking every possible turn she could take, we ended up getting done with this in an hour and a half. I mean, that's insane for a game as solid as Smartphone Inc. And so... We had a great time with that. I would highly recommend that game for for pretty much anybody. I love it. Chris, would you, so you've played this two player now. Do you think you were going to pursue like the two player board expansion that Adam was talking about? Do you feel like it, it was, it's still fun at two players on that big board or do you, do you think it should be tightened up a little bit? I don't know how much I'll be playing at two players, so I might not do that, but I can definitely see the attraction of it. Because when we were playing, it wasn't until I think the last round or two that we actually interacted with each other. Because the way we were set up just happened to be the factions that we ended up picking. We were headquartered in far distant places from each other, and we were surrounded by the retailer countries. And so we didn't end up doing a lot in direct conflict with each other until the end. And then it got really fun. And it was fun before that, too. It just was it was a different kind of interaction than it was when we played it multiplayer. But, you know, I, I don't know that I'm going to be playing it so much that I need to invest in a whole new board, but I could definitely see why that would be a fun thing to do. So lastly, I haven't actually played on this one, but it is technically sitting on my table. I got My Father's Work, which is a game that I talked about in our year-end wrap-up and games that we want to see in the coming year. Or maybe it was, I forget what we do. We do either that or the beginning of the year, and these are the games we want to see in the coming year. But in any event, games I want to play in 2023, one of them was My Father's Work, and I got a copy of that. Uh, We also talked about it when we did our voting for the Golden Geeks this year. That game showed up in a whole bunch of categories, and I got to talk about it a bunch because it showed up in a few places like thematic games, and the theme to this game just absolutely blows me away and and draws me in in like the the best way possible i haven't actually played it yet but i have opened the box and i punched it and all i can say is oh my goodness this game is so so pretty such a nice production hopefully the gameplay holds up but the production is absolutely amazing high quality components and i'm just dying to get this one on the table it may be another year before I do, or it may be the next con before I actually get this game played at a rousing 180 minutes box time. That's not even what it takes for slow people like us to play. So you can probably figure it's going to be on the order of Twilight Imperium. Does it have a solo mode? Could you play this solo if you wanted to? It does not. Oh, that's a that's kind of disappointing in a game that's got a big story campaign that you couldn't get through this. I know, I know. I'm I'm a little sad about that, but I just this is just one I had to have. I had to have it. Yeah, I want to play this. I want to play this with you. I hope we do get a chance to play it in the spring or in the fall when we get together. And I know that part of the reason the game takes a long time is because I think there's big narrative parts in it that it, yeah. like you, it reads out of an app to you and stuff. And I, yeah. I like that. I don't mind that at all. I mean, I know it kind of slows down the tempo in the game, but it's fun to add that theme, you know, even if it's kind of forced in with, uh, with somebody reading out of a storybook. Well, I will be more than happy to bring it. So thank you for agreeing to play it. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, I think that will wrap up this week's On the Table. Now, we did get a couple listeners that left us very nice reviews on apple podcasts and if you enjoy the show we would love it if you would leave a review for us as well it does help more people find the show so we uh we actually had four reviews but i'm just going to read two this week and we'll get to a couple more next week uh the first one the title was best board game podcast five stars from ss dixon one s and i think that's steven dixon who's been chatting with us a lot on on facebook and he said you won't find a better group of people to listen to as they share their hot takes on this amazing hobby Every member brings humor, thoughtful perspectives, and creates an approachable atmosphere in what can, what can be an overwhelming topic. I look forward to every Monday for the next episode and enjoy interacting with Tim through social media. Hashtag Tim is the best. So thanks, Stephen. That was a 
fantastic review. Love it. Another fake review. <laughs> and by the way, Adam and Chris, I've been telling you guys for years that you should start, you should get on some social media platform and promote the show. Now you know how to get more likes on the, on the See, reviews. the thing you guys don't understand is that Reiner Knizia did the scoring for this one. So it's actually <laughs> a combination of the lowest number of votes and number of animals that live in your house. Whichever is lowest divided by two is how you get points. And so I think I'm in a clear lead here. <laughs> okay. And then I think, Tim, didn't that... Um, reviewer, didn't you extort him? Weren't you going to like say, you know, you're going to charge him 7,500 bucks or something if he didn't leave an knife review, something like that? Uh, yeah, exactly. I think the opposite was that he was going to leave me a negative review and then offer And he only gave this to us because I paid him a lot of money. For it. Oh, that's how it That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, this is the second review. Um, this was by Just Some Box on Apple Podcasts. And the, the title was Back in the Hobby, five stars. And they said, just started back into the hobby. I've been looking for new games to play. And while I don't always agree with their opinions, they give me an honest opinion that I feel definitely helps. Adam has the sultry voice that makes me happy to listen to multiple episodes in a row. So I think that's a point for Adam there. <laughs> hey, hey, thank you, Bill. Thank you so much. And, and though I agree that Adam has a great voice, I just, I can't believe anyone would pick Adam's voice over Chris's voice. Right. Chris just has the, oh, the just the, the it's like a voice of God talking over us here. So, And <laughs> maybe one of these days I'll get a vote. <laughs> it's so sad. All right. All right, people. If you like Chris, you got to get out there on Apple Podcasts. I think, Chris, every I think all your biggest fans already left reviews before we started asking for people to, to shout out their favorite reviewer. But I, I just I, I'm happy for you guys, too. <laughs> all right. Well, we really appreciate these reviews. Really, seriously, when we see these come in, it, it means a lot. Um, Reminds us why we do this. Uh, it's fun to have people getting some joy out of uh, us, us putting this uh, this thing out every week. So thanks a lot. All right. Until next week, take care, everybody. Good night, all. Bye-bye.